Well, good morning. Greetings from Count Pearl, Count Pearl Ministries down the road here ways. I left in 96 to go to Count Pearl where I am today. Learned this morning in Sunday school. Gary did a good job. Rhonda, you taught him well. Yeah. In Sunday school. But his promises, Gary, are always what? They're always true, aren't they? And he's going to... So today I want to talk to you about, about the church. I think it'd be a good thing to talk about. And I'd like to do that in the next few moments. And um, Danny, we started a little, bit at, a little bit late. So if we get finished a little bit late, you're not going to be upset, right? Yeah. All right. So y'all finish. Y'all still finish at 12, 31 o'clock, right? Well, we're going to see about that, right? No, we're not, we're not going to do that. But I look forward to being with you. Before I look into God's word, though, as we talk about the church, I would invite you to bow with me for prayer, please, and I'd be glad to lead us. Father, I recognize I, as I bow humbly before the one who is crazy in love with me, and I'm so thankful for that. Thank you that you're on my side. Thank you that you walk hand in hand with me. Thank you that you tell me, Don, with me, you can do all things through Christ, my Son, who strengthens you. Thank you, Father, that your promises are faithful and true. Thank you that you are not hanging the proverbial carrot in front of me and, and telling me to, to, to walk in faith, and then you remove that carrot. No, no, that's not what you're about. Thank you that I can trust you. Thank you, Father, for what you're doing in the life of All's Chapel Bible Church. And as we talk about your church today, I pray that we will all have a better understanding of how it is built. Give us grace of wisdom. Open our eyes by your Holy Spirit who indwells every believer and show us truth today. And then grant us grace to walk in it by faith. That's our prayer. And it is my prayer, Father, personally, that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For you alone are my strength and my redeemer. I recognize that at this moment, and I say thank you for that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I know that all of you are aware of what a mystery is. Maybe you've read a mystery novel or you watch mystery shows, mysteries unsolved, that kind of thing. We know what mysteries are. I, I still find it an absolute mystery to know that Betty Artis has put up with George Franklin for nearly 63 years. Now that's a mystery, folks. I can't figure that one out. Can you? Well, I, I said that because I know she's not cooking anything, so I'm in good shape today. I don't have to worry about that one. But I can, all the mysteries in all the world, there's one mystery, there's one mystery that I want to, you to be introduced to today that tops all mysteries of all time. It's the top mystery of all time. And I begin by looking at a passage of Scripture. Now, I'm going to ask you today, and I don't know if you brought your Bibles or not, but if you didn't, I really challenge you, and you're probably not going to do this, but you wouldn't hurt my feelings at all. If you got up and you sat by someone who had one and said, hey, can I look on with you? Would you mind if you had a Bible and someone looked on with you? I I'm gathering that means no, you wouldn't mind, right? So there's no objections to that. So feel free to do that if you want. There's a passage in Scripture, and, and I'm going to start with this one. I'm going to take you to the ultimate, to the book of Ephesians. That's where we're going to go. Because I'm convinced that's what the, the whole book talks about, the church that belongs to Jesus. But before that, the mystery I want to remind you of or introduce you to is this one. 
It's found in Matthew chapter 16, and you're welcome to turn there, although I'm not going to read that particular passage, but if you were wondering where it's found in Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, 16, 13, and we find Jesus coming to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Angie and I were actually at this very spot in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is opposite of Caesarea Maritima, which is by the Mediterranean Sea. There's two Caesareas in the land of Israel. We've been both places. This Caesarea Philippi was the one named after King Philip and he, and uh, Herod Philip. And so he was, this, this uh, particular place is up in the north uh, of the Sea of Galilee. It's right at the southwestern foothills of, the, of Mount Hermon. It's a huge, huge place. And the very beginning of the Jordan River starts right there. We were there at the beginning of the Jordan River. And here's Jesus. Now he takes his disciples up there and Matthew begins this account at this place. It's interesting because this was the pagan place where uh, at, on Mount Hermon there's this flat surface, humongous massive rock and etched in the surface of the rock are these pictures of pagan deities. It, it, was, um, it was called the, um, Paneros, after the, God, the, Greek, the Greek god's Pan, which meant any kind of god you can think of. They would plaster the pictures of these fake, false gods. And I can see Jesus, we stood there, Jesus standing in front of that massive, humongous structure, and he asked that question to his disciples. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And right behind him was all these false gods. Now we know ultimately, remember that Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus gave him a hundred on that test score, but he said, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed that to you. And I want you to know something, Peter. Upon this rock, he said these next five important words, I will build my church. I will build my church upon, I believe, Peter's confession that you are the Christ and you are the head of the church and you're the foundation and that you're the builder and you are it. But I'm convinced that Peter had no conception whatsoever of what this term, ecclesia, the word church, is. He didn't have a clue. As a matter of fact, if you kept reading, reading there in Matthew 16, you would realize that Peter flip-flopped. On the one hand, Jesus was congratulating him on the recognition of who Jesus was. But when Jesus then began to explain to his disciples that his plan now has taken a sharp turn to the right, there is a detour. There is not going to be an earthly kingdom then there will be, and all Shepherd Bible Church believes that, in a thousand year reign of Christ on earth and the millennial reign of Christ, but not then. The nation of Israel has already said no to Jesus as their king. Matthew chapter 12, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They denied him the right. And Jesus said, you've crossed the line. He began speaking in parables in Matthew 13, so that hearing they may not perceive and understand and seeing they may not perceive. And so he began speaking in parables. And now he introduced this mystery, this thing called the church. And they were like, 
We don't know what you're talking about. We're still, we still have our minds set on the kingdom and you being the king. Quite frankly, James and John would like to be sitting one on the right, one on the left. We'd like to be part of your cabinet in your kingdom and your administration. And Jesus says, I want you to know that I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and I must be killed. Well, when, when Jesus said that, Peter jumped in. He didn't, he, I'm convinced Peter didn't hear the words and be raised again. He just jumped in and said, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Now, why did he say that? Because that wasn't on Peter's agenda for the kingdom. How can you be king and be killed? So when Jesus introduced this mystery of the church, it still remained a mystery to them, even till after the church began on the day of Pentecost, when in Acts chapter 1, the disciples all gathered together, and they looked up into the heavens, and they saw Jesus ascend into the heavens, and the angels Angels said, look, why do you men from Galilee gaze up looking into heavens? This same Jesus whom you saw leave will return from heaven. He set up his feet on the Mount of Olives and the mountain was split and he's going to establish his kingdom. And they, before that, were saying, Lord, you're here before he ascended. They said, Lord, you're here. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They still had a earthly kingdom, and it was right because Jesus will establish an earthly kingdom. That will happen one day. And Jesus did not correct them. He did not say to them, you guys don't know what you're talking about. That kingdom stuff back in 2 Samuel 7 when God promised David a kingdom and he would have an eternal throne and a house and a dynasty, that's over with. That's done for. That's all forgotten. But Gary Caldwin told me that God keeps his promise. And God promised there's going to be a kingdom. Trust me, there's going to be a kingdom on this earth. It's just not right now. Right now, in its place, there's not the kingdom that has its root system in a man by the name of Abraham who fathered a nation by the name of the Jews who had a kingdom at one time in Israel First king by the name of Saul, and then David, and then Solomon, and then Rehoboam, and then they split, and then they were taken off the land because of their disobedience. They were not faithful to the covenant that they had made with God. God promised to do what he said that he would do, and he did. And today, although the land is back there in 1948, they were reestablished. The kingdom is not established as it will be. So what's taking place in between that time? Well, in Acts chapter 2, we saw the birthday of the church. They were saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to the Israel? And Jesus says, no. It's not for you to know the times of the seasons of the Father set in his own hands, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the world. And Jesus is instituted something new. And it's interesting that in the book of Acts, now if you want to meet me there in the book of Acts, chapter 19, you can do that because I'm going to, this is the beginning of the, the whole book of Ephesians where, where Paul, who was one time by the name of Saul, 
on his, on his missionary journey, went to Ephesus, which was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. It, it, if Ephesus was a large metropolitan city, a little bit different than Downsville, yes, but it was a crossroads where there was a lot of uh, major intersection of business, commerce was there. And the, great, the great temple of Diana was there. And it was there that Paul kind of had a, a base, and from that he spent two years teaching. There's an Acts chapter, well, let's just look at Acts chapter 19, and, and uh, uh, beginning in verse 8, uh, he went, Acts 19, 8 is where I am. He went to the synagogue, he, Paul did, and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. In other words, that there, there is going to be a kingdom established, and what God is doing today is that he's preparing citizens for that kingdom. I'm convinced that's what he's doing. And that that's another subject for another time. But he's preparing citizens for that kingdom. But when some were hardened, verse 9, and did not believe but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And so apparently he used the facilities of this of the school that was owned by Tyrannus. And so he spent, notice what it says, two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So here in Ephesus, two years teaching so that all in Asia came and every day there was a seminary class and Apostle Paul taught for two consecutive years. And may I suggest to you that Ephesus was the hub where these, well, you had Colossae nearby, you had Sardis nearby, you had Thyatira nearby, you had Philadelphia nearby, you had uh, Smyrna nearby, you had Laodicea, all these smaller towns nearby, and they would come together at Ephesus. Paul taught, and they went back, and there these churches were established. But the hub seemed to be at Ephesus. So Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians. So with that in mind, I want you to meet me now in the book of Ephesians in our New Testament there. Galatians and then after that, Ephesians. And I want us to take a moment to look at this great book. And this is just, this is just strictly an overview. And I want, what I want us to see here is how the church is built. How the church is built and how Alls Chapel Bible Church can continue. That's how I want to leave you with today. Now, when you turn to the book of Ephesians, and you start in Ephesians chapter 1, if you've read your Bible much, and if you've heard a whole lot, you're, you probably come across this term of election, where God chooses based upon His choice. And there are many godly, scholarly, wonderful people who believe that God individually chose you, but he didn't choose you, and he chose you, but he didn't choose you, and he chose you, but he didn't choose you, and he chose you, but, sorry, he didn't choose him. And they believe that, and they're godly, they're wonderful, they're scholarly. I'm just not one of those. I believe when we find in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, I do believe that God is sovereign, I do believe that God chooses, don't get me wrong, 
But rather than the book of Ephesians being written to an individual, it's written to a group of churches. I'm not even sure if he's talking about one church in Ephesus. As a matter of fact, in the very first verse, to the saints who are in Ephesus, the in Ephesus in some, in some manuscripts isn't there. So it could just be to the churches in that area. Now, this is not heresy. It could very well be at Ephesus. However, if you were to look at the book of Colossae, the letter of Colossae, you would find that there were personal greetings to individuals within the church in Colossae. But if you read the book of Ephesians, there are no personal greetings from any individuals. Therefore, to me, signifying that perhaps, that's probably a good word, right? Perhaps this was a letter that was to be used in all of these little churches as the apostle taught about the church, universally, that belongs to Jesus. And when you get to chapter 1, in fact, I just want you to meet me in chapter 1, and I want you to, and, and, and notice, I'm going to give, I'm going to, we're going to thumb through the letter here, and we're going to find this particular word, mystery. And a mystery, a mystery in the Bible, it was something that was previously concealed, but now presently revealed. Previously concealed. Don't, can't figure it out. Don't know it. Presently revealed. Now, if you heard what I just said, repeat that after me, please. Giving you a little test. Here we go. Ready? A mystery is something that was previously concealed, presently revealed. Paul now says, I'm going to reveal something to you that from the foundation of the world, God and his marvelous plan had a plan. Now, here's what I believe the plan was. I believe the plan was is that God elected and chose a servant by the name of Abraham, and from him there would be a people known as the Jews. They were the elect group of people. And if anybody in the Old Testament wanted to know anything about the God of heaven, they had to go to the Jews. Because the Jews were the dispenser of truth. It was from the Jews that the law was given. It was from the Jews that, that how to maintain a lifestyle that would be pleasing to a holy God was given. So it was the Jews in the Old Testament, Father Abraham fathered them. In the New Testament now, the nation of Israel is bypassed. We saw that in Matthew. But now the church has begun. Now, who is this church? Well, ecclesia simply means kaleo. The latter part, the root word of that word means to call. And the preposition ek, E-K, in front of that. I'm looking for the word exit in front of these doors going out. That's what that means, out. So you put ecclesia together, it means called out. And so in the church then is that those who God has called out of the world, both Jews and Gentiles, which is what the mystery really is. And so I'm convinced that, that when God elects, he's electing the Old Testament from Abraham, the Jews, and from Jesus, the church. So there, if, therefore, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you placed your faith in Christ, you are part of the elect. The elect body. Jesus is the elected one, and from him, he's the head of the church. We believe and know that. And we see that in Colossians, the letter to Colossae, and certainly we see that here. And from him, the, the Christians make up the church. But it's corporate. 
And I believe that that is the mystery. The mystery that as was previously concealed but now presently revealed is that now if you want to know the God of heaven, if you want to know the God of heaven, you must come through the, you, the church is the dispenser of that truth. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, you could check that out for yourself. 1 Timothy 3, 15, the apostle Paul is writing to young pastor Timothy. That's what 1 Timothy is all about. It is, a, it is a personal pastor's manual for how to do church. That's what the six, chapters are, the six chapters are about. How to do church. Read it. It's for a pastor, however, but there are many principles and applications for all of us. In 3.15, 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul writes to Timothy. He says, Timothy, I, I'm writing these things so that if I'm delayed in coming to you, by the way, Timothy was the pastor of this group, of, of the, that, that church in Ephesus that kind of served as a hub. If I'm delayed in coming to you, I write these things to you so that if I'm delayed, you may know how you, you ought to conduct yourself in the church, which is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. So the church is the dispenser of truth in this age today. We are... We are the, the group of folks whereby God is transacting his business on earth. That puts a different twist on it when All Shepherd Bible Church meets now because you're realizing we are a handler of truth. We're dispensing it out in this area. And there are other church, local churches dispensing it out in other areas. Importance of it. But what was not known in the Old Testament what was previously concealed in the Old Testament was this truth. You ready? If you wanted to know God in the Old Testament, you had to be a proselyte. You became a Jew. Correct. Because, because the Jews really believed at one time that God only spoke the Hebrew language, right? I'm being facetious there, but you had to become a Jew. And their their fatherest intention would be that God would place Gentiles, a Gentile is anyone who is not a Jew, on absolute equal standing and status with a Jew. They would say, no, no, if you're going to know God, you have to follow these stipulations and these ceremonial laws and these civil laws and these social laws and the law of, that, that God gave through uh, Moses. And the Apostle Paul comes and takes a sledgehammer and shatters all of that. And that's, what he and that's why the book of Galatians is there. And remember, Paul had to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Peter, bless Peter's heart, because Peter, remember Peter, in, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 10, Peter had to have a dream where the sheet was coming down from heaven, all sorts of unclean animals were on it. And God says, take it, eat, and, and kill. I said, oh, not, not so, Lord. I'm not going to eat any of that. I've never done that since a child. I am a pure-blooded Jew. God says, look, Peter, what I, have made, what I have made clean, don't call unclean. So in Galatians chapter 2, whenever Peter was there with Paul, Peter would eat unclean food with Gentiles, pagans. But these Judaizers, they came in. And the Judaizers are those who proclaimed Jesus, but they held to the law. And they saw, and well, Peter says, well, I'm not going to come over here with them. And he was being a hypocrite. And Paul nailed him on it, toe to toe. He says, you can't do that. 
So it was unheard of in Peter's representation of that for a Jew and a Gentile to be absolutely equal, on equal standing, and that's the mystery. Nowhere in the Old Testament did you find that to be true. There were, there, you, you can find some similarities between Israel and the church, but they are not equal. The church is not Israel today. There was the bride, and the bride of Christ is called the church. And there was the vineyard, and yet we're called the vine in John 15. And the sheep and the shepherd, and the sheep and the shepherd. But one word, church, that was not, that was not used to describe Israel. Called out of all people, of all walks of life, Jew and Gentile, to form, here it is now, one body. Each person being absolutely equal in their standing before God and each person needing one another. That's what the whole book of Ephesians is about. Now, with that in mind, look with me in Ephesians. I've got my eye on the clock, and we're almost done here, but I want you to look with me. And you get into the first chapter, in verse 7. And, and, and by the way, the, and the other thing, this is just a side. Read through the book of Ephesians. Read the letter. And circle in your Bible, it's okay to write in it, Circle every time you see the words in Christ, in him, in Christ. You're going to see it over and over and over again. Why? Because the book of Ephesians is talking about the corporate church, which belongs to Jesus. He's the head. In him. There's my word. You can circle that one. That's one time. Verse 7, Ephesians 1 in him, speaking of Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made abound toward us. Pause, stop, pause. Look at me just for a moment. That's the other thing. All the pronouns in Ephesians chapter 1 are not singular. The second person, plural. He's talking about us, not you, individual Christian. He's talking about corporate church, not individual Christian. There's another difference. And he says, towards us in all wisdom and prudence, verse 9, Ephesians 1, having made known to us, here it is, the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. What is that? Verse 10, that... That's a purpose clause that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, get this please, he might gather together in one, all things in Christ. That's the mystery. Look over, if you will please, jump over to chapter 3 and verse 3. He says it even more clearly. Ephesians 3 verse 3. For this reason I, Paul, I'm starting in 1 now, Ephesians 3, 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, verse 3, how that by revelation God revealed something to Paul that was previously concealed. He made known to me the mystery, there's the same word again, as I have briefly written already, by which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Verse 5. Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, previously concealed, 
as it has now been revealed, presently revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets that, here's our purpose clause, verse 6, here is the mystery, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, equal status, same standing, of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Jump now, please, to verse 9. 3, 9. 3, 9. And to, I'm, I'm having to, I would love to pick up and say some of them, but for the sake of our time, I'm not. Verse 9, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, there's our word again, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden, previously concealed in God, who created all things through Christ Jesus. Get this now, verse 10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Now stop right there. I would just say this much because it's too good to let go. Did you realize what he just said? This previously concealed mystery about the church had been hidden from eternity past, but it's now made known. And what we do as church, as church, Jew Gentiles together, forming one body, ministering, serving, edifying one another. We are instructing principalities and powers about the church that they did not know about. That's what he says in verse 10, which is pretty cool. Notice, if you will, chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse 32. Now, chapter 5, you're thinking, well, he's talking about the husband and wife relationship. That's right. And in marriages, whenever I do a wedding, I did one here January the 25th there at Count Pearl for some ex-staffers who some are servers. I want to get married right there at Count Pearl. It's a great place to do that. Talked about this very verse. This, verse 32, Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5, 32. This is a great mystery. The same word. But then now he defines it. Now, what's the mystery? He's talking about the, the husband and wife becoming one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. That's the mystery. See, for the Jew, they had no problem understanding Messiah and kingdom. Messiah and kingdom. That went together like peanut butter and jelly. But Messiah and church, Jew and Gentile... No, that was a mystery. They would have never fathomed that in 100,000 years. And finally, look at chapter 6, verse 19, for the last use of it. Chapter 6, Ephesians 6, 19. He's asking them now to pray for me, but the utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. What is the mystery of the gospel? Jew and Gentile forming one body called the church, of which Jesus is the head. Well, Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. Well, how is it to be built in the remaining moments? And I know that they're fastly fleeting, and some are saying, oh, they're already gone. Hang with me just for a moment. It's interesting 
that in the first three chapters of this letter in the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters in our English Bible, is written, I'm convinced, of a corporate position. Talking about the church corporately as a whole. However, in chapter 2, how do you become part of that church? Is by faith in Christ. And in fact, this would be a good time for you to say this verse with me because you need to say something to stay awake, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You know the verse. Just say it with me if you know it. You ready? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then Gary Colvin correctly identified verse 10 this morning in Sunday school. For we, get this now, plural, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. I believe that the workmanship in particular, now Gary used the principle of that today and he was spot on with it. But I believe that the workmanship that he's referring to ultimately in Ephesians 2.10 is the church. What is it, and by the way, that word workmanship is, is uh, we get the word poetic or poem from that. You ever listened or read, heard a beautiful poem read? Oh, that beautiful, it's beautiful. It blends together. and That's what the church does. His work, it, we are God's workmanship. Where God brings the Jew, the pagan, and, and together as one. Ah, man, this is so phenomenal because you understand that in the Old Testament, excuse me, in the New Testament, when, 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 when St. Paul went to these uh, pagan cities, when I'm talking pagan, sister and brethren, I'm talking, I'm talking pagan. When he talks about the barbarian and the Scythian, now we might know a little bit about what a barbarian is, right? At least you're familiar with the word barbaric. Is that a good term or a bad term? Barbaric. Bad, right? Scythian is far worse. And he's made all one, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free, rich and poor, black and white, male and female, all are one. Get this now, and here's the beauty of this. This is the application of this. Get this. In the church, when a person is converted by faith alone in Christ alone, Ephesians 2.8, they become part of the church. And they become a member of the church. And then hopefully they will attach themselves to a local church like All's Chapel Bible Church. But it's interesting who the teachers may be. Because in that culture there could be a slave owner and a slave who perhaps was one time a Scythian, which is worse than a barbarian, but came to faith in Christ, equal status with a slave owner, so that in the church, this former Scythian, now Christian, who's a slave, has a gift of teaching. And he comes and the group gathers and meets together. He may be the Gary Coleman and teaching the slave owner. That's the beauty of this thing. That's what blew their minds. Because all the social status was welded together in a fabric of workmanship that we're all united. There's no distinction. There is no difference. So then, how is, by the way, the first three chapters speak of ultimately, corporately, how does one begin, how's the church built? First of all, through conversion. That's the first thing. And I'm going to rapidly run through these points. Through conversion. When you trust Christ as your Savior, you're accepted in the beloved. Let that sink in. 
You don't have to perform to be accepted. You're just, God says his promises are true, right, Gary? God says, I accept you. You put your faith in Christ, all of your sins, the past ones, the present ones, and the ones that I know you're going to commit 37 years later are forgiven. You are in the beloved, accepted by God, adopted into his forever family, and secure in your salvation of your justification. You'll never again be penalized for your judicial sin that separated you from God. Through your conversion, you become part of that church. So, well, you know, I don't want that. I've, I've heard people say, well, we don't want those kind of people in our church. I've actually heard people say that. We don't want those kind of people in our church. And I, would, I, and I just tell them, well, what if God wants them? Because they've trusted Jesus. What if God, God's already accepted them. Who are you to reject them? So how's the church built? Through conversion. Secondly, it's not only built through conversion, but it's built in your character. Because in, when you get to chapter 4, Ephesians 4, I'm almost done. I know you don't believe that, but I promise I am. When you get to chapter 4, now he begins his whole practical section. Because he says, now look, based upon who you are cooperately, 1, 2, and 3, this is what you do individually, 4, 5, 6. This is what you do. And notice how he pleads with all lowliness, verse 2, with all gentleness, with all long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one Spirit, just as you've been called in one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Do you get the oneness here of this corporate body? And, and St. Paul is begging these barbarians and Scythians to, to get along with their slave owners. And he's begging the rich to humble themselves and get along with the poor. And he's begging them not to create unity, but to maintain what God has already established. So that now when I see you, if you're, you tell me, I'm a, yes, I'm a believer in Jesus. I say, you're my brother and sister. There is, no, there is no social status, none whatsoever. You're on absolute equal standing in God. You're just as much accepted by the Father as I am because I believe in Jesus as well. But notice what he says, how the church is built. It's built in your character because all of a sudden, as I practice these things of lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering and bearing with one another in love and endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit, I'm undergoing, that's an important word, undergoing a character change because my mind now is I'm seeking to have the mind of Christ who I am in if I've trusted in him. So the church is built through conversion in your character and by your conduct, by your conduct because he talks about the fact that he's given every person an individual ability. That's what he says in the beginning of verse 7 through about verse, well, through 16. He's given you an ability. And here is what he wants you, it's called a spiritual gift. And this is what he wants you to do with his spiritual gift. And now with this, I promise, I'm going to bring it to a close. Look at verse 16. I've got to jump there because of our time. Ephesians 4, 16. From whom, speaking of the head, Christ, from Christ, the whole, W-H-O-L-E, that's the corporate body, the church, the elect one. The whole body joined 
and knit together. That's his workmanship. By what? Get this now. Every joint supplies. If you were to look at my Bible, I have the word every joint supplies circled. According to the effective working by which, get this now, every part does its share. I have every part circled and does its share underlined. Because that, brethren and sistren, is how the church grows. So if you're expecting to get some guy in here who's going to be the new CEO of All's Chapel Bible Church and the church is going to grow, it may grow, but it isn't going to grow according to Bible standards. If you're expecting to get somebody in here who knows it all and is going to be your one-to-go-all person, you've got the wrong idea because that's not how the church grows according to the scripture. How does the church grow? As every part does its part. Every part. Every member. See, here's what I say. Every person has a place, and every place has a purpose. As every part does its share, causes growth of the church. That's how the church grows. Causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now I'm going to close with this. By the way, I said, how does the church grow? It's through, your, through conversion in your character by your conduct, and lastly, with your contribution. As you do your part. As you do your part. Do you know your part? Do you know your area of ministry? Do you know how you're benefiting to encourage, to build up, to edify the body of Christ? I close with this illustration. Some of you may know of the name J. Vernon McGee. Anybody recognize that name? Oh, J. Vernon McGee. I heard him speak when I was in seminary in Portland, Oregon. He was speaking there, and old J. Vernon McGee had that old drawl about him, and I heard that he did this at the commencement at Dallas Theological Seminary back in the day, many years ago. He's with the Lord now. But, uh, you know, the Dallas Seminary commencement, usually it's a big, very sophisticated, you know, you get a speaker that comes, and he's going to give a very detailed challenge to the graduates. O.J. Vernon McGee gets up there and he said, I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a fellow by the name of Eleazar. Eleazar was one of, the, one of the priestly family. and His job in the Old Testament, whenever the tabernacle was moved, and it was moved every time the cloud moved, remember by day, They'd pick up and leave. And if it was by fire, by night, anytime it moved, they moved. They had to pick all that stuff up. And the book of Numbers shows the organized description of how they traveled. Eleazar's job, his only job, his only job was on the northwest corner of the tabernacle tent. His job was to make sure the peg was in the ground to keep the tent from falling down in a windstorm. He did that for a while, and pretty soon Eliezer, that's the only job he had. And he was expected to do it faithfully, responsibly, consistently, loyally, lovingly, voluntarily, cheerfully, with, with, with all of his might. But Eliezer got the big head because he had graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary, and he thought, hmm, 
All I'm doing is carrying this measly tent peg around. Well, there's no, there's no, there's no contribution in that. So one day he just decided not to put the northwest corner of the tabernacle tent peg in the ground. And that night, J. Vernon McGee said, a huge sandstorm blew in and messed up the Holy of Holies. And then he concluded by saying, if you are a graduate of Dallas Seminary, as you're graduating tonight, and if all God calls you to do is to be an Eliezer and take the tent peg and put it down every time God says put it down, put your tent peg down because you don't know when a sandstorm is coming. You are needed. Be faithful. Let's bow together, shall we? Now, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, that's the conversion. That's where it starts. You're saying, Don, I'd love to help all this chapel Bible church. I've really come to love these folks. I'd like to do that. Well, in order to be a part, you've got to be a part of Christ. You've got to be in Christ. Put your faith in him. If you've never trusted him, trust Jesus today. If you're still uncertain as to all that entails, please see one of us at the end of the service, please. As a believer in Jesus, if all God's given you to do is to hold the tent peg in the northwest corner of the tent, you think, well, nobody ever sees what I do. Nobody will ever know. God sees. God knows. Do it faithfully. Do it lovingly. Do it loyally. That's how the church grows. That's God's design. That's God's plan. So, Father, it is my prayer that we'll take these words seriously. It's not my words. We've endeavored to take a whole lot of material in a short amount of time to teach a very important truth. And that is, every person has a place. Every place has a purpose here in this church. I ask, Father, that every person, every believer in Jesus will step up to the plate and do their part to the glory of God and to the building of his church that Jesus said he would build. Encourage them, I pray, to do just that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.